I'm Brandon Dawson, and this is The Distiller, a podcast about how we find meaningful work and how we find meaning in the work we do. Welcome to the new year. This is the second year of The Distiller, and my first guest for this year is Kim Taylor. Kim is a Cincinnati-based singer-songwriter who's released four albums and two EPs over the course of her career. She also put out an album as half of the duo Water and Sand with Todd Tebow. And recently, Kim had a bona fide hit in China, a surprise to her, which led to her touring China twice in 2018 and opened doors all around the world that she couldn't have imagined. Over the last couple of years, Kim has also expanded her reach into acting. Most notably, she co-starred with Ned Oldham in the Todd Porterfield film, I Used to Be Darker. Kim and I talked just before the end of 2018 inside the beautiful Gothic chapel at Christ Church Cathedral in downtown Cincinnati, the reasons for which Kim will tell us about a little later on. But it is a beautiful space, and I encourage you to visit the distillerpodcast.com while you listen to this episode to see photos of that space and of our time there. Kim is just about to release her fifth album. It's called Songs of Instruction, and it comes out February 22nd. But the first single, The Hard Way, is available right now to stream on Spotify and other platforms. Stick around at the end of our conversation because I'm going to give you a preview of that song, The Hard Way. Kim is one of my very favorite singer-songwriters in Cincinnati or anywhere else. Her voice is somehow both innocent and world-weary, tentative and powerfully certain. Her songs convey a depth of feeling and experience, but with great simplicity. And it was really great to talk with Kim specifically about both her artistic process and how her work has really become her work. It's a great insight into an intentional approach to creative work and a life that sustains it. So I'm very happy to present as the first episode of this new year, my conversation with singer-songwriter Kim Taylor on The Distiller. All right. Well, first of all, cheers. Cheers. Welcome. Thank, Thank you. Thank you for, for joining me here yeah. at Christ Church Cathedral. I usually start off with a, with a specific question, but before we start that, I want to ask you to tell us a little bit about where we are, because mm-hmm. in the intros to these, I usually introduce the place, but I feel like you would be better mm-hmm. capable of doing that. So we are at Christ Church Cathedral. <laughs> uh-huh. We are in the Centennial Chapel which is um, the original chapel for this cathedral. Um, So this place is about 200 years old, a little bit over 200 years old. Um, And they just renovated it about a year ago. Um, So these walls used to be um, dark brown. All the stone walls in here? All the stone walls used to be dark brown, so they were cleaned up. That was one of the biggest changes that happened. There was also a brand new organ um, that was hand-built and installed. You can actually hand-pump that organ, which is pretty cool. It's incredible. Um, Yeah, so I have been connected to this cathedral now for five years. And um, in the last year, I've started hosting uh, concerts in this space. Mm -hmm. Um, And Justin has actually been doing the the sound for it. so yeah, um, people, musicians love playing in oh, gothic chapels, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. I do, and so you don't even need. Do you even amplify them? We or? do amplify it, yeah. Okay. Um, um, but yeah, it's just a super vibey place, especially since they have re-renovated uh, it. Everything is about the sound. So even the yeah. floor was um, was new, is new, was newly poured, and 
everything is geared towards just an impeccable sound. So right on. Well, for people yeah. listening, Terry's taking pictures as we talk, and we'll put some mm-hmm. pictures of this beautiful, beautiful place. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've, we haven't done any podcast episodes sitting under stained glass cool. windows and in such a nice. lovely spot. So mm-hmm. thanks for welcoming us in. Yeah. So this is your this is your home church. This is my home cathedral. Yes, okay. which you know, for me, I was. 12 years out of church. And so coming back to a church was a really big deal. And I still, you know, I'm still like, what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But um, but the, Episcopal, the Episcopalians are pretty friggin' cool people. So yeah. I'm... Yeah. And you've, yeah. I've seen you've posted <clears throat> some things online and, yeah. and stuff that, about the cool stuff that's going on here. Yeah, exactly. It seems like a place that's doing really, really... Great stuff. It is, yeah. It, yeah, it does sure. seem for my money if you're going to be a part of yes. an American Protestant group, the Episcopalians are maybe the one. You might want to check us out. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Cool. Well, thank you again for having us in here. So the question that I, that I start off with with mm. everybody mm-hmm. is, what do you do? Uh, this is a podcast about, uh, we say it's mm-hmm. about how we find meaningful work and how we find meaning in the work we do. And mm-hmm. I understand that work doesn't always mean paying work for people. Mm-hmm. Uh, but tell us a little bit in your own definition about what you do professionally or vocationally. Um, I would define myself as a songwriter. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I don't know, it's funny, I, I define myself less as a singer, I guess because I know at some point my voice will probably giveaway, but I'm hoping I, hoping my sight won't. <laughs> I'm hoping I'll, and my mind, I'm hoping I'll always be able to, to write yeah. um, songs or write in general. Um, I'm lucky enough that I do get to make a living at it. Um, I don't take that for granted. I know this is a changing world and it's only been for maybe 10 years I've been able to make a living mm-hmm. at it and who knows where we'll be 10 years from now. Um, but yeah, that's what I do. I, I write songs. So cool. Yeah, and uh, along with that, you mm-hmm. obviously you perform songs. You're mm-hmm. a recording artist. Yeah, and in the last few years, you've mm-hmm. actually started doing some acting. Yes, as well. Yeah, and I don't call, I don't think that's my vocation. You don't think you're an actor? Well, I mean, I I've had all these opportunities to do it, but I'm still like, what? Really? Are you sure? <laughs> well, I want to. Maybe we'll talk in a minute because I want to talk yeah. about how that stuff came mm-hmm. up. Um, Tell, tell us a little bit about how you became a songwriter. When did you start writing songs? When did you mm-hmm. when did you think you could take it seriously? And when did you begin to think, oh, I might actually be able to make a living from it? Um, so I started writing songs when I was about 18. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's funny because I grew up playing music. I was a f- I f- played flute in junior high, took a lot of piano lessons. But in junior high, that's where I learned all my theory was flute and sight reading competitions and all these different things. Um, and then when I hit ninth grade, I wanted I didn't want to be a band nerd, and I decided I wanted to be a dancer instead. So mm-hmm. I kind of abandoned the band path in high school. Um, but I still that's when I started singing, and I didn't realize until I was about eighteen that songs were written by people. <laughs> I think I was a late bloomer to a lot of a lot of stuff. They come was, from somewhere? That they come from somewhere. Um, and so like I didn't even know Joni Mitchell existed till I was probably about 20 years old. It was all it was all uh, Janet Jackson and yeah. pop music, Casey Kasem's uh, Top 100 Countdown every Which wouldn't weekend. be surprised to anybody that's listened to your latest musical forays. Yeah. It's, it's dance pop. Right, it's dance Straight pop. ahead I dance wish. Pop. Maybe, maybe <laughs> I'm saving that one, saving the record for when I'm 70. Um, so, 
so, you know, I started writing songs in, when I was about 18 and started learning guitar when I was about 20. Um, started playing, this was down in Florida. I was born and raised in Florida, so I was still in Florida at the time. Started playing open mics in Orlando, Florida, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was where I, I started um, kind of getting obsessed with doing this thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and that evolved into me eventually finding my way up to Cincinnati when I was about 23. And in Cincinnati, really, Cincinnati's really been the place that I think embedded it in my soul, really. Like, I started playing uh, open mics on a regular basis in Cincinnati for several years. You came up to Cincinnati to play music? No, I, I, I came up... Um, to go to school, and I mean, honestly, I came up because I needed to get out of Florida. And yeah. I had a couple of friends in Cincinnati. I didn't know where else to go. Okay. Um, I landed here. I found a place to live right away in a church, actually. Mm. Um, and I started playing open mics on the local scene, um, started playing on a regular basis, started being invited to do, um, to sort of have regular guest spots. Um, and then um, and honestly, like City Beat kind of embraced me from mm. the beginning. Mm-hmm. They started writing reviews about me. I put out a record in 2002 called So Black, So Bright. And City Beat gave me lots of new artists of the year and yeah. lots of praise for it. And I started doing some touring with local band Over the Rhine. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was really just, you know, it's funny because even then I never thought, oh, I can make a living at this. I just did it because I loved it. I never thought like, ooh, I can profit off of this. Right. You know, that really didn't hit me for a really long time. So anyway. And for a while, and I don't know all the timing, but for a while you owned a coffee shop. I did, uh, yeah. In Pleasant Ridge. Yeah. And that was really how we, I mean, how I made a living because all any music money was <clears throat> being pumped back into, you know, music. So um, so at that time, once I got the coffee shop, I, I mean, there's there's a lot that happened in that space, but uh, I ended up having management and an agency mm-hmm. and all these different things. And so I would, I would work the coffee shop and then I would come home and I would, um, then I would, well, then, then I would go on tour for a couple of weeks and I'd have to come home and work the coffee shop. And I did that for like almost nine years. Yeah. Um, and had a lot of amazing experiences, put out many records during that time, but it was exhausting. And I got to a place where I couldn't I couldn't do both. I couldn't do both, and I had to choose. They both were so consuming, not just physically, but like emotionally and mentally. And I was starting to get to a place where I was making a living Hmm. musically, and so I could go, okay, I got to choose. Maybe I don't have to. Maybe I don't have to do both. Do this. So describe a little bit, um, because this is the the, kind of the dirt that I like to get into Mm -hmm. in the podcast. Is like, what do I not know? When I talk to somebody who's a, who's a, uh, we talk to a guy who's a, a, a life flight air rescue nurse. It's like, what is the minutia of your day? How did that happen? Where did you start out? And so I feel like everybody's got exposure to songwriters and to music and has some knowledge of, of uh, you know, folk music and pop and stuff like that. But the process of deciding to, to go down that path mm-hmm. and actually how you get how you make all of those decisions is interesting to me. So mm-hmm. at what point did you you said that City Beat embraced you mm-hmm. um, you know best new artist awards in the mm-hmm. in the Cincinnati Entertainment Awards. Mm-hmm. Um, and then at what point what are the milestones that you kind of go through 
you put out that first record. Mm-hmm. Who who first took you out on the road? What were the first mm-hmm. experiences that you had where you felt like, oh, this is a real thing. This isn't me playing coffee shops anymore. The very first experience I had with getting a taste of like uh, what it was like to open for another artist was actually prior to me moving to Cincinnati, I opened, I, I, I did a little tiny tour that stopped in Cincinnati. Mm. Um, and I opened for this gal named Sarah Mason. Mm. And she lived in Michigan and she was just, she was a folk artist. She was just starting to break out herself. And that was like my first real exposure of like, an exposure and experience of um, seeing what this world was like. Mm-hmm. Um, when I moved to Cincinnati, um, I was definitely embraced by Over the Rhine, Karen Linford of Over the Rhine. Mm-hmm. And they um, really, I, I mean, for years I was like their go-to opener. Yeah. And it was just sort of a uh, priceless experience for me. Um, not only to have to um, play constantly before this silent, reverent, you know, like kind of actually listening crowd, but having to um, make sure my chops were Mm. good and and even vocally. I mean, I could, I mean, I am a totally different singer from Karen, but it was, you know, night after night of having to sort of be in that situation was really good for me. Um, And then eventually, um, like I said, I, I ended up doing, I ended up getting a manager that um, connected me with an agency and a, a lot of different moving parts. And I started playing up actually at this club called The Living Room in New York City mm-hmm. on a regular basis. It's no longer, unfortunately, there anymore. But a legendary um, place. But it's a legendary I mean, place. All to, the, it's where music. like Nora, Nora Jones was right. launched out of there. And yep. and um, the owner and her husband who owned um, a a really famous studio at the time, which no longer exists as well, called The Magic Shop, Mm -hmm. really embraced me. They kind of saw me as being like the next Nora Jones. And Mm -hmm. so I was going up there on a monthly basis and playing and meeting industry people and um, just just constantly just trying to make it happen. But again, I, I don't know. I wasn't really thinking a lot about, can I make a living? I guess I was just thinking about, uh, I was so obsessed with writing songs and performing and the whole process and learning to to live this life. And I didn't know what else to do. There was a part of that too. Um, and the deeper I got, the more I was like, well, now I really have no like valid <laughs> skills in any other field, you know, like the I don't know how to do anything. The time has passed, exactly. School. That, yeah, for sure. Um, so I just kind of got, and except coffee, I can make coffee, right. you know. Yeah. <laughs> I was good at doing that. Um, how did yeah. um, uh, the process of getting a manager, the process of getting an agent, Mm-hmm. How does that happen for somebody that doesn't know who approached I, you? I don't know. I, I mean, I, I people ask me that a lot. I just actually had a conversation with that about that with someone a couple weeks ago, and it's certainly part luck. Mm-hmm. Um, I happened to get my manager back when Midpoint Music Festival was actually more like a South by Southwest situation. Yeah, where it's a agencies, legendary Cincinnati it, festival for people that aren't from here mm-hmm. for years and years. It still happens, but it's a different thing now. But it used to be. Every club in sort of downtown and over the Rhine over three nights, you know, 500, 700 bands in these little tiny venues. It was really great. Yeah, it was really geared towards the local scene and it was really geared towards um, helping people like connect and network. And it was more like um, it was more like South by Southwest was yeah. set up. And so so the second year I played it, um, 
my manager shop stopped in at my gig and I had a full house for my set and he handed me his business card. I was like, this is weird. I don't want a manager. But six months later, I ended up calling him in Boston and and it's I've been with him for 13 years. Wow. And, um, and, you know, he... He um, he's opened a lot of doors for me, made a lot of connections, and and it's just you know I don't know it's sort of spiraled. But I think the other part of that is I have um, I've said yes to a lot, <laughs> even stuff I didn't want to do. Just mm-hmm. yes, I need to do this. Yes, exposure. And I when I and I say I didn't want to do it, not because necessarily it was um, immoral, but more like. Um, I, you know, I was exhausted, you know, mm-hmm. I just didn't want to do this anymore, you know, really having second guesses about this life. And, um, but I just kept saying yes, and I, I can't stop now. What else am I going to do? Yeah. <laughs> um, and I don't know, that's just, it seems like every six months there's something else that pops up that I go, what? I'm doing what now? <laughs> <laughs> and now movies and now China. And, yeah, exactly. And yeah. so now so now it's made me go, okay, when I'm 70, I am going to make a pop disco record. It's going to happen, you know? <laughs> Fantastic. Well, I, so uh, maybe full Disclosure, Kim mm-hmm. and I first mm-hmm. met when I was tour managing over the Rhine mm-hmm. and you, 2005, I think 2006, you opened about a year worth of shows mm-hmm. for them. And so we were out on the road together for a long time. And my memories of that are um, specifically, uh, there was a guy that, that you and I both knew and loved who's no longer with us, Dave Foreman, mm-hmm. who was mixing front of house for Over the Rhine at the time. Mm-hmm. And Dave and I used to marvel. Mm-hmm. Um, we used to just sit and listen mm-hmm. to your songs. And like, we'd go out, we'd be, you know, out for a weekend or out for a week or whatever, and we'd all be shacked up in a hotel somewhere. And then Kim would come out of her hotel room the next morning with a new song. Drunk. I thought you were going to say drunk. No, drunk. I was like, no. Drunk as a lord. <laughs> you... No, uh, the opposite. You would go bury yourself in the hotel room, and yeah. I know that you would you would call Dan and Griffin, and then mm-hmm. it seemed like you just basically pulled out the the notebook and you would just come out. I, I think um, I feel like a fading light. Your mm. your second full length album mm-hmm. was largely maybe written that year on the road, mm-hmm. and so songs like I feel like a fading light. Um, I remember. I think I was there the first time you ever played that live, mm. and just being like, fl- you know jaw on the floor mm. where did that come from mm-hmm. at those tunes and Dave and I both exactly the same way mm. I feel like a fading light some days they, they don't come so easy truth truth is the strongest word truth is like the smallest bird I learned some things you let fly Why don't we just break the storm Why do we feel low so That process of writing those songs mm-hmm. like has that changed for you over the years in terms of like mm-hmm. how you do that? Not really. I mean, I do think I have less time. Well, that's not true. I would say I don't think I have less time. I think I think during that time, I think something that um, when I look back at that, especially when I think about I was touring like that and I was also having to come home and run a coffee shop and my son was growing up. Mm-hmm. He was like, um, I, I think it was the fact that I didn't have a lot of time to myself 
that I felt so desperate to write the songs. Mm. I needed to get them out. And I was very, um, someone asked me the other day about this. I was, I'm very faithful to capturing the ideas. I don't, um, I, cause I know that if I don't, I will forget them. Yeah. And, and so I'm very dedicated and, and have been for a really long time to any melodies, any fragments of words. I don't care. I have no attachment to them in the beginning. I just, I can feel them bubbling up and I have to sit down and record them. And then later I'll go back and listen and see if there's something there. But I've, I did it, used to do it on an analog tape. Now I do it on my phone. so much easier on my phone. <laughs> yeah. um, but I've just always been faithful to that. It's like the only thing I, um, it's like, it's like I, sometimes I feel like it's the only thing I have, hmm. you know. Um, and I don't know, I think that's made all the difference. So that's, I, I'm still doing that, you know. Now it's like I'm, but now I sometimes I'm waiting, going, it's so quiet in my brain. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> Where's the next one? Where's the next one? So, so yeah. do you, I remember hearing something about Lucinda Williams talking about writing songs that basically mm. t- for her it was like going to work, mm-hmm. you know, sit down at the kitchen table, pull out the notebook. It was, it was work and she was going to put in the time. Is mm-hmm. that the way that you work or is it more... You wait until something bubbles and you capture it. It's both. I, I, it's not, it's not uh, either or. It's I wait till things. I feel like I'm always working because mm-hmm. I feel like I'm always having to stay um, <clears throat> vigilant. Mm-hmm. You know, someone once described the process as um, you're standing in the middle of a field and all of a sudden you hear from the distance the oncoming train, mm-hmm. and and and. And then the train gets closer and closer and closer, and then it hits you, and then it leaves. And I'm just in that field, and I've got my record, and I'm waiting for that oncoming train. So I'm always vigilant, and I am the kind of person, if it, at 1 a.m. 1 a. I have to pee, but also I have a melody, I will record the melody. Right. I do it on planes. I'm always... Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, I also know there's a time where I need to sit down and start going through... Gotcha. Everything, which is so painful, mm-hmm. but just going through it and figuring out what's going to work. And that's when I know I, I'm starting to write a new record Okay, is when I start feeling that I've collected enough, yep. you know, and I can feel that I've got, I've got a lot here that I can start sifting through and finishing songs and what are the themes happening, what, what has been going on in my heart for, you know, three or four years now. So, yeah. so that's the other part of it for what yeah. you do. You don't get to just write the songs because otherwise... Nobody hears them. You have to make a record. Yeah, I feel compelled to. And I know some people don't, you know. And I've always felt compelled to um, have other people hear it and not just keep it to myself. Because I know some people just make art and it's just for them and that's yeah. cool and that's what they need to do. And I, I respect that. And, and I, I honestly, I kind of admire that because they don't have the pressure to, to need to be loved and stroked, you know. <laughs> I don't know what that is. Um, but I definitely have a, a need to let people hear it and try to connect with people and go, okay, I made this thing. What do you think about it? Now? Yeah, <laughs> I, w- I wanted to ask you about that because mm-hmm. you are you are a very private person. Mm-hmm. You're not a huge. That's why we're joking around. If you haven't heard Kim's music about her making a dance record, because yeah. the music that you do make is kind of on the other end of the spectrum. It's yeah. intimate, quiet, right. really deep, beautiful music. Mm-hmm. And I wondered that about you. Like it, mm-hmm. it, it, um, it seems to me like the, the the parts everything after the writing of the song is potentially something that is a challenge to your personality 
Um, mm-hmm. Like getting it out there, performing, mm-hmm. making a record, having to go through the process of publicizing a record, having mm-hmm. to do this stuff mm-hmm. to get it out there. Is that true? I mean, is there a part of you that, is there any part of you that really digs that or is all of that sort of the necessary evil that it takes to make a living writing your songs? I really love performing. Um, so I don't, I wouldn't include performing in that category. I definitely love, um, because it's so different mm-hmm. from the recording process. It's so different from the writing process. It's, and I, I definitely feel <clears throat> a connection with a good performance, even, mm-hmm. even with a bad performance. I, it, there's something that it does to me. There's a humbling that happens when I don't get it right. Um, that I, and the older I get, the more I embrace being in that place of like uncertainty with performance. Um, if you would just take a second mm-hmm. and describe that for somebody that's not a performer, what does not getting it right mean? I am totally, can I swear on this thing? But yes. I am totally okay with fucking up. Like, in <laughs> fact, um, and maybe it's just because I know, I, you know, I know what it feels like to have like a really, Wonderful, like oh, Kim, you nailed that one. That felt really mm-hmm. great. And sometimes when I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm, I'm not, I'm uncertain. Then it just this sort. Sometimes a magic can happen, and I love that line. But um, what was your question again? Like the just, performance. Yeah, aspect, because people see an artist, and sometimes they know that they have mm-hmm. an on night or an off night. But yeah. for you, you know, is it is it oh, I forgot a lyric or I missed a chord or is it just I didn't connect or is it? Um, I would say, I think. Okay, so um, that's actually a really interesting question because, I don't know, I've always really loved, I I don't know why I've always loved performance. Um, It's funny, like when I was a kid, I was sort of known as being um, sort of a little bit of a showman. Like we had lights around my swimming pool and they were colored lights. My dad was an electrician Mm -hmm. and he had these, all these, like we always had the best um, technology. We had a tiny little house with the best. We had can lights before (laughs) they were even a thing. Um, And my dad had installed these like spotlights and I would go out there and do my little dance routine in front of people. So I always liked Mm -hmm. getting a reaction from people. So I think that's, I like getting a reaction Mm -hmm. from people. Um, But I went through this stage, uh, two years ago, actually after I made these films, mm-hmm. where I started suffering from severe stage fright. Really? Um, and I had never experienced that in my life. And what would happen is I would get on stage and my legs would start shaking. Wow. And they would shake for the first two songs and then then I'd be okay. But it was the weirdest thing. You just thing. had to power through it. Yeah, and it's really interesting for me to experience that because mostly I would just get up on stage and do it and not think twice about it. Mm-hmm. Um, be a little nervous, for a minute, but then I'd get over it. A healthy nervous. Yeah, like a yeah. healthy nervous. But um, so. Is yeah. that still? You said it happened. No, I worked through it. It was the weirdest thing, though, and and I I was actually really terrified that it was like, oh my god, this is like a new stage of my life. I'm right. Super, uh, you know, cognizant of everybody looking at my every move. But it was it was just a, a phase I went through. So. Do you have any idea why it started after the films? I have a feeling that it was because. Making a film is so different mm-hmm. from performing for a live audience. Yeah. Um, and I didn't realize, especially when you're working with a crew of like 40 people, and, um, y- y- you know, when you choke, 
everything has to be reset. Yeah, yeah. Everybody back <laughs> And to it's line. a big deal for 40 people in the room. Whereas right. when I'm a live performer and it's just me, mm. if I choke, it's funny and I can start over again. And, yeah. um, it, and it's just different. I felt like there was a lot more pressure. And so, um, yeah, you know, it's just harder. Yeah. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the movies because yeah. I don't even know how that, how that whole thing came about. Yeah. So you were in a movie, it was released in 2006 called I Used to Be Darker. No, it was released in 2013. Yeah, right. just Getting a few my years dates ago. Wrong. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, how did that come about? Was that the first time you'd ever done that? It was the first time I'd ever been in a film, although um, a, f- a local friend of mine who, who does some film work, when she found out I was going to be in this film, she f- literally, I'm not joking, she forced me to audition for another film that was coming to Cincinnati, and I was like, I'm not going to do this. And I did it, and I got the role, So I, which was good ultimately, because then I got this experience of being on a professional film set and yeah. having this minor role. And I had, I mean, lines and everything, huh. but learning language before I actually did this other film in Baltimore. Yep, the language of production. The, the language, language of production, and like, yeah. you know, I had no idea. I didn't know I, that experience, what it would be like to actually... Yeah. Have rolling and the f- cameras on you and everybody staring at you and 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 be like, you know. <laughs> um, so it, I mean, the long or the short story. I won't give you the long story. Is that I met this uh, girl in uh, some in a college experience I had in my twenties, and she. We dated the same guy mm. briefly, mm-hmm. <laughs> not at the same time, different times. <laughs> um, she, we were never really friends, but she was always known as the writer, and I was always known as the songwriter, the musical one in our school. And anyway, she moved away. She went to Iowa Writers Workshop, became like a really amazing writer. Um, and then she started dating um, this up-and-coming director, Matthew Porterfield, out of Baltimore. And she emailed me one day out of the blue in like 2010 and was like, I've written, I've co-written the script. Hmm. I want you to be in it. I've sort of built loosely this film off of you. And I was like, wow. shut up. <laughs> and she was like, no, will you do it? And I was like, I said to her, I was like, no, probably not. I won't do it. I didn't hear from her for a year. She emailed me again. She was like, no, I'm serious. It's happening. <laughs> will you do this? And I was like, I don't know. And so then her and her then boyfriend director, Matt, Matt came to a show of mine in um, well, it's actually a show I was opening for Over the Rhine in Baltimore. Mm-hmm. And that was my audition. And and that's how it started. And so then, yeah, we did the film. And then we did the film, and a year later, got into Sundance. And then that whole thing spiraled. Right. So, yeah. Crazy. Mm-hmm. Did you enjoy it? I did enjoy it, but it was one of the hardest things I'd ever done. Why? Because I, I had it required a level of vulnerability that I thought I had mastered as a songwriter, okay, and as a performer, as a live songwriting and you know singer songwriter, mm-hmm. I thought I'd really mastered. I think you really, when you are doing performance, um, and then you have to spend time with fans, and especially because I am an introvert, mm-hmm. I can be extroverted at times, but I am deeply an introvert. Um, I felt like I had, I really knew what that rhythm was going to be like, and it's not like that at all. And um, it really feels like having a video camera in your face. Um, practically embedded in the pores of your skin mm-hmm. is just a bizarro experience. And yeah. having to accept um, what you look like, how you sound like, every move you make. I was thinking, I was actually thinking recently, um, 
uh, with Lady Gaga and A Star Is Born. Yeah. Um, you know, she, it's so different seeing her in this raw picture because we just get this image of her that's usually, you know, just decked out in something head to toe. Or, mm-hmm. you know, we have this vision of her and she just looks like a normal person. Yeah. And that's what I think people are freaking out about with her. And so it's like, I don't know. She's such a human being. Yeah, she's such a human being. And there's talk about her. You get to see this deep vulnerability with her that people want to see. But at the same time, then it opens you up wide for all these other right. you know, issues, criticisms or whatever. And yeah, I was just sort of terrified of that process. So I think <clears throat> I've always said that I'm with songwriting. It's songwriting is a way, music is a way f- for me to get over the fact that I probably can never be a poet because mm-hmm. I think poets like poetry is like the highest form in my opinion when you can get all the rhyme and the music in just the words oh you know that's the best <laughs> and I feel like I hide behind my voice and I hide behind the guitar mm. well well with with acting I felt like I was hiding behind the guitar and hiding again you know like it was just this totally different yeah another another layer another peeled layer back. Of, yeah peeled back exactly. what's the what's the feedback Ben, I mean, it's a different sort of feedback because mm-hmm. it's delayed. It's not the immediate gratification or even not gratification criticism of of being in front of an audience. Right. But how has how ha, what has it been, and how has that hit you as mm-hmm. somebody who gets a lot of feedback, mm-hmm. but now having to sort of accept that feedback in a completely different way? So I ended up doing two more projects after that. One was I had this incredible experience to. Um, get to be in a big SAG production, mm-hmm. um, get cast in, it was this Stephen Sondheim, um, the Nick series, which mm-hmm. was like a really big deal. And so that led to me getting to be in that kind of production, which was insane. And then I had 300 people staring at my every move. Um, and I think that's that was the thing that, one of the things that gave me the shakes for a while. Right. Um, just the scale of the just the of scale the of it and the scale of of yeah if you screwed up hmm. then you had 300 people that had to start over again and then you well, had you this well you can just history. feel the dollars oh yeah clicking off totally yeah, yeah. totally everybody's salaries mm-hmm. and if you make the mistake there's thousands and thousands of dollars exactly yeah. and um, so that was really intimidating and then but then I, I ended up doing another film called Ken the Movie with Ken Stringfellow of the mm-hmm. Posies which has been a, a great experience as well um so I don't know. I think the feedback is like, um, I mean, people people say that I'm natural at acting, um, which is great to hear. I also know that it's that's a whole craft. It's a whole world. I'm not as nearly as passionate about that world. I think I'm doing it because um, for me to say no, it's like, why wouldn't you do it, Kim? Just do it and see what happens. Sure. You know? Yeah. Um, so, I, yeah. And it seems like pretty pretty decent feedback. Along yeah, the way, to be told that you're right, a, a natural and, about it. Yeah, so so we'll know. just see. What yeah. what uh, last thing about that? Like, mm-hmm. what what are the transferable skills between the music and the songwriting? Well, and my I, I think one of the the most incredible things I've been able to witness is the work ethic of the film industry. Mm. I mean. So I ended up, I actually, now that I forgot about it, I ended up doing three films after it, two indie projects that had a huge crew. One was um, the Baltimore Project with Matt um, that worked with a lot of kids out of um, Johns Hopkins Mm. and the art school there. And then I did another project 
that worked with the film crew and a lot of kids out of um, Ohio University in their film school. And I don't know, just being up, you know, for 10 hours around the clock, you know, from like eight o'clock at night to six in the morning with a crew of, of hardworking kids that are all committed to this one moment, moment yeah. by moment by moment, right. was really inspiring and really um, felt good to sort of, I mean, those are my people too, you know, being any, any, any being in sort of those scenes are all my people. Um, so, and also I think uh, I've been fortunate to be around a couple of different cinematographers and directors that are, especially recently, I've been hanging out with a German director, Claudia Rorarius, who's worked on the Ken film. And she's just a really inspiring person. Women in the arts, women, filmmakers, cinematographers, um, and watching them and their dedication to their craft. Mm -hmm. I, I bring that to my craft and the seriousness that they take each moment, everything. I mean, she spends freaking 45 minutes trying to get the right shot and, right. you know, set up for one moment, you know. It's like, it's a lot of dedication, so. So what have you brought back to the music from from that? Um, the same kind of dedication, um, that it's important, it's worth it, it's valuable, it's, and it, 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 takes a long time, you know, and a lot of commitment and, and the process is long and slow and, but it's worth it, mm -hmm. you know, so. So thinking back to 2005, 2006 mm -hmm. and what I was talking about when we were on the road there, my, mm -hmm. my conception <clears throat> of who you were as a, as a, an artist then and who you are now, um, it's sort of like then you were doing this brilliant thing, mm -hmm. but it seemed like you were finding even at that point, finding your feet, finding your yeah. confidence. I remember really enjoying, as a as a musician myself, like enjoying watching you try on different ways to perform different yeah. songs, different right. instrumentation, mm -hmm. different overall tenor to the thing. Right. You know, more intimacy, more aggressiveness. Mm -hmm. um, as a as a performer and as a whole package singer songwriter, now you are five albums and two EPs mm -hmm. later and a record mm -hmm. to come out. Mm -hmm. Well, that'll, that'll be out when this airs or very soon after. Mm -hmm. Do you, do you think you're a, a different artist sort of at the core? Has it made you see yourself differently there or approach it differently? I don't think I'm a different artist. I mean, I definitely feel all the stages, mm -hmm. um, but I think I'm a lot more centered mm -hmm. and I'm, I, have accepted my limitations. I know, I think I know now what I'm good at mm -hmm. and I don't feel bad about what I'm not good at or what's, what aren't my strengths. I can, just, you, can you describe that? Like maybe what you thought 10 years ago you wanted to, to be or who you thought you were that you're, that you're not now? I probably, well, you know, I, I have a, my range, I have a much deeper, lower range. Mm -hmm. I am not, um, it was funny, I actually did a session for Epic Records years ago in New York City, and I was I was actually, had long, another long story, but had been brought in um, to- We got plenty of time. Be tell, a songwriter for a new Avril Lavigne record, right? And so all these, the way these work out is all these, all these like, uh, basically there's a call put out into the world for, um, new songs for a, a huge artist record. And yeah. so they, they, they basically just block out huge sections of major cities and have songwriters come in and just try to write songs. And, and then they own the song that you did, which kind of sucks. But anyway, I had gone in and 
I had co-written the song with this um, dude, and we went into the studio and recorded it. And after the session, and while we were recording it, there's one section of the song that you just need to belt it. Mm-hmm. I mean, it just requires a pink level of belting. And I'm not that kind of singer. Um, and I remember the engineer being like, "Come on, just just belt it." And I'm like, "I can't. Like, I my mm-hmm. my my vocal range is gonna break, mm-hmm. and that's that's where I'm at." Yeah. And um. And I remember him just getting really quiet. And I remember after the session, me feeling kind of bad because I had this had this kind of quieter version of the song, you know, and I could hear how it would be belting out, how she'd belt it out in my head, but I couldn't personally do that. And I've come to accept that, you know, I am, I'm, I am a much quieter. I have my moments where I can be loud and aggressive, mm-hmm. but it's, it's a lower tone and, 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 and I'm also okay with the fact that I have limitations to my voice. And that was, um, I think about my own journey as a singer. Um, you know, I still, I have friends in, from my high school years that go, you do what? Because they have no idea. Yeah. And then when I sing, they're like, well, you have to sound nothing like you did in high school. Because I had a really timid, quiet voice. Uh-huh. So um, that's an example. I think it's really important um, to find what you're good at and then to just be really fucking good at it. Mm. Um, because then that's what people you know, embrace and know you for. And I think I'm starting to figure that out. And um, I don't think people expect me to like belt it out like Aretha or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, cause that's just not what I do. And it's not what, I can't do that. I'm not Aretha Franklin, yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so I'm okay with that. And I don't think I was 10 gotcha. years ago, you know? Right. Um, I'm also, when it comes to the things I'm interested in writing about, I like to, write about life very simply in simple terms. I'm, I'm actually okay with cliche because I think it's all about how you re, 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 like represent the cliche again, how you serve it back up. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I'm, I'm interested in how to repackage simplicity um, in, in a way that feels deep and meaningful. Like I when see I th- it through a new yeah, facet or exactly, yeah. exactly, yeah, so, yeah. What about China? Tell us about China. Oh my God. Um, China's still something I'm trying to wrap my brain around, honestly. People probably don't know what I'm referencing, so, mm-hmm. so start from the beginning. So the beginning is that in 2017, in the fall of 2017, I received an email from a company called NetEase, from the vice president of a company called NetEase, and it was a big, long, lengthy email about the company and yada, yada, yada. And um, I deleted it. <laughs> Let's just say. <laughs> no because thanks. I was like, oh, email from China. Like, was it asking the last for something? Thing. I didn't really know. I was like, I read half of it and I was like, what is this? <laughs> Come on. My song, some, my stuff was. We will wire it was you $1.4 million. Yeah, it was like, exactly. It was like an <laughs> offer. I was like, yeah, whatever. So I deleted it um, and didn't think twice about it. Mm-hmm. And two months later, I received another email from the same guy, Matthew. Um, and that was the same thing, but more information and an offer. And so I thought, I was like, hmm, I don't know what this is, but I'm going to forward it to my management, my lawyer. So I did, and I started doing some research and um, found out that a song of mine um, had exploded in China. And there are a couple of major companies in China that are, in a nutshell, cleaning up the system, cleaning up the way that that Chinese people um, connect with music, and mm. it's you know everything's been pirated for the most part, mm-hmm. um, and that's not really the case anymore. Um, I guess it's the younger generation loves 
they love apps and they love apps that give an accessibility to music. Um, so interestingly enough, um, apps like Apple Music and Spotify don't have much of a, a, a place in that market. They exist, but they're very, very tiny, like 1% of mm -hmm. the market. So there's a couple other more Chinese-centered companies that dominate the market. And um, so then I ended up uh, signing a deal with with this company that's sort of like a publishing deal. So they have, mm. they have, um, uh, they've been granted um, exclusivity to my catalog for a certain amount of time. And, um, and so that then led to me getting tons of offers from agencies. And, and again, I still had, <clears throat> I had no picture. I really had no idea what this was. I was just like, oh, this is cool. This is great. Fine. This Somebody's is nice. interested Whatever. in my this music. This is cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so then we started getting lots of offers from touring agencies um, to represent me. And so eventually, after about four or five months of weeding through offers, um, we started working with this agency called Modern Sky. Um, they have offices all over the world. They also have an office in New York City, which made us feel like, okay, you've got an office in New York City. Maybe you're legit. Yeah, and but also just like... Um, there's a language barrier, and we wanted to make sure mm -hmm. um, we knew what we were signing, <laughs> right, right. we were doing. So uh, fast forward to um, August, I did my first tour over there. I played two major festivals um, for thousands of people. Yeah. Um, I've seen these pictures. These are song, massive festival massive crowds. Cra festival crowds. And yeah. I, then I did another one in October. Um, I did one festival in October, and then I did a, a streaming uh, live show on um, NetEase's account. So anyway, um, yeah, it's crazy. And you had what, <laughs> I mean, what sounds like a legitimate hit over there. I mean, one Yeah, it's like a, it was like a legitimate hit. And I'll just tell you this story. So the last time I was over there um, in October... I was, we flew into um, a city called Kunming, which is in Western China, and then we flew to, I had this streaming uh, session in Beijing, um, and when we checked into the hotel um, in Beijing, this really beautiful little um, super hipster kind of hotel, when I walked into my room, um, opened the door, like it was, everything was automated, like the lights came on, and um, it was very cool, and anyway, there's a, a, a record player, or not a record player, but like a stereo, and within 30 seconds, um, my song started playing, and I was like, oh, come on, what this is whatever. Is this? I, I figured my, my touring, or I figured that my, um, my manager my, over there had done this mm -hmm. to me, you know, or whatever, as a gag or whatever. Yeah. So I go downstairs to the lobby and meet up with my band, and my band was like, we walked into our room, and your song was playing on the radio. And I was like, that's weird. That happened to me, too. And I asked my, um, my agent. She was like, no, that's just how it is. Like, they just, everybody just knows your stuff, Kim. And I was like, what? That's insane. <laughs> so it, not, it had not been planned by the hotel, by anyone. I just walked in, and that was the, that's the song that they have playing in all of the radios when you walk into these rooms in this hotel in Beijing. That's crazy. Randomly, yeah. So wow. I was like, okay. <laughs> like an anchor Anchored to a bottomless sea I am floating freely in my heavens 
As a practically, as mm-hmm. a you know, as a as a singer songwriter who's been working to get your name out, now all of a sudden mm-hmm. you have a hit in Asia. Yeah, there's got to be, and I'm like, I don't want to. We're in the Midwest, and people don't talk about money, but like, yeah. that's got to be impactful. That's got to actually like be both a, a career validation, and it's got to be a meaningful expansion to this thing that you've been working on for years. Yeah, it's it's um, it is, and so I feel like um, you know, it's funny because there was definitely a part of me when when I was there. It was it, it was, both times were such great experiences. I've had so much experience touring and. Playing and some incredible, you know, festivals here in the United States, mm-hmm. and getting to tour with lots of really amazing artists. So, I, it wasn't like I was showing up completely, you know, right. unsure of what was going on. But it was, it was absolutely a validation. I mean, I, I cried, mm-hmm. you know, I cried a lot. Um, and then uh, the the agency that reps me over there had hired a um, a document like a like a film crew to document my first experience in China. And so when wow. my in August when I landed in Beijing, um, there was a film crew pretty much by my side for three days. Um, and then they made this awesome little like introduction of my first time to Beijing. And they had hooked me up with all these like really amazing experiences. And when I first saw the documentary, I just bawled like a baby mm. because I thought, how number one, how crazy is it? for um, this film crew out of China to have spent three days with me, following me, getting my story, listening to my music. Well, and they knew my music already, but documenting my every move. And then they make this this, this like three-minute documentary that basically just summed up 15 years of my life perfectly. <laughs> like they got me better than anyone. And that's why I cried because I just went, oh, my God. They even like told the story of I tell the story of how I wrote days like this and how I'm, how like that was a turning point for me and like they just nailed it and I was like that's incredible to me like it was such a gift. Wow. And I was like okay I can die now. Not that I want to die. I'm not ready to die. But but it was definitely like oh, oh. wow okay all right. That's really beautiful. Yeah it was really beautiful. Cool. Uh, let's talk about the new record just a little bit. Okay. Uh, you recorded it. Here in Cincinnati, mm-hmm. this is going to turn from a work interview now just into the standard radio. Yeah, tell okay. us about your that's new right. music interview. I'm excited to talk about the new music. Yeah, well, well, tell me about it. It's um, there's kind of been a, a break between mm-hmm. your last record and this one. Mm-hmm. When did you? You were talking about you know that you're ready to make a record when you have this yeah. group of songs. Was that the case for this one? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, so the last record I put out was "Loves the Dog." That was I had made it in 20. 11 and 2012, put it out in 2013. Mm-hmm. And uh, have had a lot of things happen between now and then. Um, and just a lot of different experiences. Um, in the last year, I've had a lot of difficult experiences. I already have started, 
I've actually not been writing too much for about a year, and in the last two or three months, I've started writing again. So I know I'm already working on the next record after this right, one. Right, because all this stuff's because I've going had a, on. I've had a, a bunch of different experiences this year. But for Songs of Instruction, part of that, I think, has um, emerged from reconnecting with a religious institution, for mm. num- num- number one, um, and owning it in a way that I never have. Um, I've always... I, I had left... Um, my uh, Christian faith, which was my, my, I'd grown up in a Baptist church. I had done a couple years of Bible college. I had left the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and one of the main reasons why I'd left the whole thing was because there was no place for my, my gay friends. Mm. Um, and I was very much like, if my gay friends can't have a place to worship, then I don't have a place to worship. Yep. So, um, and I genuinely thought for, for about 10 to 12 years that, that, um, there was no place for me in religion, um, that, and that I didn't know what I believed. I certainly didn't believe anything that I grew up with. Um, I certainly didn't believe in biblical literacy and a lot of stuff. And I didn't. I was pretty bitter and angry. Um, I only had. If if you were a Christian, I was very. Um, I was very um, judgy of you. <laughs> I was only friends with atheists. <laughs> um, and it, long story short, again, we we ended up rediscovering, coming back to uh, a church. And we came here partly because we knew the Episcopal Church's stance on gay people and women. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I, it's just been kind of interesting um, because I feel like I've reconnected with something that had been royally um, hijacked. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> um so on the one hand, you know, it's funny. I've actually, I have actually never read the Bible. I was an English lit major. I'd actually never read the Bible from beginning to end. Read, knew the major stories. Sure. You know, it's so infused. I teach short stories to high schoolers. It's so infused in every short story I teach mm-hmm. my kids. And I'm, I'm, you know, I keep, I keep realizing how all these metaphors and these stories are just going over their head. Um, they just don't get so much of it, and it's because they just don't get. There's such a illiteracy when it comes to the biblical right. text. Right. So I'm like, but wait a second, Kim, have you read the Bible from <laughs> beginning to end? So it's so funny. Um, I'm reading all these stories again, and in a com- with a completely different perspective, mm. and my 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 mind is just being blown away. It's just it's just funny because I'm getting to go, oh, David. <laughs> You're so fucked up. You know that. What a or, cad. What a, it's just you're just such a weirdo. Yeah. <laughs> I can't believe you did that. You know, like I never would. I never had that interaction with stories. Was uh, it the uh, distance? You were just able to come to it completely a, free of. Well, that and just you know, there the Episcopal Church and and so many other forms of faith. You know, have a very different connection to the Bible. And mm. I grew up with a literalist. Every word is literally true right. and if you don't understand it then it's because Kim God knows better than you do and yes. just let it go don't even try don't even try yeah and um and that's just not how I was right. so um yeah it just it's just a different experience and so it's pretty cool but songs of instruction I think is partly stemmed from that that's partly um it's partly um me reflecting on my the the kind of upbringing I religious upbringing I had, and go and rejecting it. Um, there's a song in there called um, "Pearly Gates" that's all about 
the process. I grew up with this concept that, you know, being a Christian was all about going to heaven and, mm-hmm. you know, who was in and who was out. And once you get, once you got there, Kim, especially growing up Baptist, I'm probably going to offend all of my Baptist friends. I'm sorry. Um, but I, I definitely grew up being told like, heaven's going to be so great. Um, we're all going to have our own mansion and the streets are going to be made of pure gold and it's just yep. going to be wonderful. And, you know, that's a really fucking lonely a concept of heaven. And so with this, my song, Pearly Gates, it's all about, I don't even want that. Yeah. Like I, I want, I want to rip down these concepts of being exclusive and living in a mansion by myself and streets of gold. Who cares about that? Right. Really? Who actually wants Who that? actually wants that? Yeah. Like that sounds, I'd slip on that and like break my <laughs> hip or something, right. you know? Um, so yeah, there's, there's a lot of that on the record. And, um, and then, and then it ends with um, me doing uh, a, a song, Make Me a Channel of Your Peace, mm-hmm. which I was inspired by Sinead O'Connor's version of it from the 80s, and that was sort of what inspired me to do my own version. There haven't been a lot of uh, versions out there, and so I thought this would be a good song to end with. So anyway. Yeah. Cool. And you made the record uh, at Ultra Suede here in Cincinnati with Justin, who mixes the podcast. Yeah. I wanted to do... Um, a record here, and I've never done a full length here. That's not true. I, my very first full length, So Black, So Bright, right. was made here in Cincinnati in Norwood in a makeshift studio. Mm. Um, <clears throat> and I had not done a full length since that time. So that's why the cover of my record looks the way it does. It's kind of a hearkening to the cover of my So Black, mm. So Bright record. Mm. Um, right, so everything's black and white. Um, and although I don't believe in black and white, I just want to say that out loud. <laughs> I believe in nuance. Um, There's a lot of gray scale of gray. in there, yeah. <laughs> but, but yeah, it's a little hearkening to that. And, um, and, and so we made it at Ultra Suede before it moved. And we also made it um, at a little Episcopal church um, called St. Luke's that doesn't operate as a church anymore, but it actually operates as... Um, a recording spot for musicians, and it's just this cute little cool. old church. Yeah, where is that? So, it's um, Sailors Park, so it's over on the west side. Okay. Um, yeah. Right on. Well, it's beautiful. Um, Thank you. Yeah, I mean, people uh, that have heard the whole record, the the record comes out February twenty second. Mm-hmm. I'm not entirely sure when this will air, but probably right before that. And the first single, uh, <laughs> "The Hard Way," is already out, and you can yeah. hear it everywhere, which is. Just absolutely lovely. I mean, Thank you. yeah, like all of your records have been great. They all convey who you are, but there's something about this mm-hmm. one mm-hmm. that just does feel like you're sitting together. Yeah. Listening to you play the songs. It's really intimately recorded. It's really, right. really, really beautiful and just mm-hmm. feels absolutely like you. Cool. That's so good to hear. I've really enjoyed it. Cool. Thus far. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Kim. Thank you. You spend. Uh, Are we done here? I think we're probably done here. I yes. could I could talk to you forever <laughs> about all this, but you've been really generous with your time, so we awesome. can wrap it up. But thank you so much for bringing us into this beautiful place and for talking with us for a little while. And we'll put links on uh, the website to all of the good stuff that we've yes. talked about, and people can uh, go see your album release. When is the album release concert? Uh, that's January twelfth. Okay, we'll make sure this episode comes out before that. Okay, excellent. In yeah. this space, yes, it's going to be awesome. Fantastic. And yeah. go to the distillerpodcast.com for links to all of that. Kim, thank you. Thank you so much.
We mentioned that Kim's new album, Songs of Instruction, is just about to come out. It releases on February 22nd, but the first single, The Hard Way, is available to stream right now on Spotify and other platforms. We also mentioned the album release concert. That is January 12th at Christ Church Cathedral. Well, as I record this, the show is sold out, so if you don't already have a ticket, you're going to have to wait for the next time. But she'll have more shows this year and will hopefully be bringing her music to your city soon, wherever you are. In the meantime, here is a sample, as promised, of that first single. This is The Hard Way by Kim Taylor. And is that the way you feel? Like you've lost all your like you've been burned away Nothing but ashes And have I described you Maybe exposed you mm-hmm. And is that all you got? Barely can raise your head Oh, after all these years I hardly recognize you Once you were a fighter Prize for all your strength But now you've gone and given up I have no words to say No wise advice to give Sometimes it's difficult Sometimes you're cynical What I can offer you Is I'll gladly sit right here And we'll take it day by day That is the new single, The Hard Way, from our guest Kim Taylor, off the new album Songs of Instruction. That's available everywhere February 22nd, but you can stream The Hard Way wherever you listen to music right now. For more information, including links to Kim's website, as well as to information about the film I Used to Be Darker and much more on all of Kim's great work, visit our website, thedistillerpodcast.com. This episode of The Distiller was recorded live at Christ Church Cathedral at 318 East 4th Street in Cincinnati, Ohio, a beautiful space, and we're very appreciative of Kim for bringing us in and of the folks at Christ Church Cathedral for letting us set up and settle into such a beautiful, reverent space. Again, you can see photos of Christ Church Cathedral and our time with Kim on our website at thedistillerpodcast.com. And of course, very sincere thanks to singer-songwriter Kim Taylor for her willingness to delve into her craft and her approach with us. Thank you, Kim. The Distiller is produced, recorded, and hosted by me, Brandon Dawson. Our show is mixed and edited by Justin Golden. Photography for this episode by Terry Heist. Our logo was designed by Scott Ryan, and our videos are by Mike Helm of My New Moments Pictures. You can find The Distiller wherever you listen to podcasts, and you can listen and download every episode of The Distiller and find information including links, photos of the guests, and a map of all of our show locations at thedistillerpodcast.com. If you like what we're doing, please spread the word. Follow and share our posts on Facebook and Instagram. And the best way you can help us is to rate and review The Distiller wherever you listen. That helps us show up for listeners looking for their next podcast addiction. 
You can email us at mail at thedistillerpodcast.com to tell us who you think should be on The Distiller to talk about their search for meaningful work or where you think we should record the next show. So please drop us a line, whether by email, on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. We always love to hear from you. Until next time, I'm Brandon Dawson. Thanks for listening to The Distiller. Bye-bye.